Welcome back to the show. Uh, really, it's been an odd year, kind of a somber, sobering year uh, for surfing, uh, for board building specifically. A uh, lot of losses this year, and I suppose that can be kind of expected. The board building industry is, I guess, about 60 years old, so a lot of the kind of initial icons are turning 80, 90 years old, and we're actually just a week since hearing about Rich Harbor's passing when news hit of yet another local legend, Huntington Beach's Rocking Fig, just passed away this past weekend. And I can't really remember another year where there's been so many iconic personalities that have passed away. And again, most of them kind of board builders. So today we'll be focusing on and actually hearing from Rich Harbor. But the week before Harbor's passing, it was Greg Knoll, of course, Scott Anderson, the week prior to that, less than a month prior to that was Joe Quigg at the age of 96. And so the thing about these, uh, these are founding fathers of board building that were still making boards up until very recently. And some of their peers, by the way, and cohorts are still making boards. And I certainly don't believe that you should ever buy a surfboard for its potential resale value. But the idea that you can own and ride a piece of functional art from any of these early pioneers of board building, or that you can still have one shaped today by Yader, Brewer, McTavish, it's an idea that is worth dwelling on. And uh, I, I really feel like that'll be kind of unfathomable in the next 20 and 30 years that we had this opportunity. More than just kind of record podcasts with these guys, it makes me want to get surfboards shaped from them and ride them. And while I have, of course, tremendous fondness and reverence for guys like Joe Quigg and Greg Knoll, Rich Harbor and Rocking Fig are actually inextricable from my formative surf years. Each was synonymous with a specific beach within driving distance from me. They're about nine miles apart. Rocking Fig was Huntington Beach, and he perfectly exemplified the culture. He was rockin', brash, broed out. He delivered the surf report on Southern California's famous rock radio station, K-Rock. It's a fixer reporting live from Huntington Beach under sunny skies, light wind, current air temperature 72, water 65, it's dropped a little bit, surf out of the southwest, still a little remnants out there, as Zuma checks in, two to three, Port Affair, just some rolly short breakers there, Malibu's got a couple chest high sets out of third point, by the South Bay, it's not really catching the south, two to three foot, Port Affair there, Huntington Newport though, three to five, fair to good, fun sets out the back, we have that Pat out for uh, Pat McGinnis, we're kind of missing him, all the boys loving you in our heart and down south San Clemente beaches points and reefs are firing three to six fair to good go get it cowabunga surfs up that's it for the beach report on the world famous K-Rock and by the way I think that K-Rock's influence is well known well beyond Southern California but just for the record among the bands that K-Rock is responsible for launching by way of uh, their first radio appearance were bands like Nirvana Red Hot Chili Peppers, The Smashing Pumpkins, Pearl Jam, Nine Inch Nails, Green Day, Sublime, Rage Against the Machine, Weezer, Bad Religion, Blink-182, and on and on. A track record unrivaled by almost any other radio station. And Rock and Fig was the morning voice on Kevin and Bean delivering the surf report every day through my youth. And being able to go visit his surf shop, hearing an icon on the radio and then being able to go visit his surf shop was a pretty wild experience as a kid. And he was a larger than life personality. 
And so if Rocking Fig exemplified the culture of Huntington Beach, so did Rich Harbor for Seal Beach decades before. It's a smaller town, it's much quieter, it's a spectacular place to raise a family, to run a small business, and you wonder if Rich Harbor just fit in perfectly in Seal Beach, or considering that he was there so long, if that much of the city's DNA was influenced by Rich and his kindly, earnest demeanor and hard work ethic, he did business in town for nearly six decades, and you'd be very hard pressed to find anyone with a gripe against him. And in fact, I actually know of none. But this little surf shop that still has the board building factory in the back, the longest running in existence, by the way, was a portal of influence for the entire surf world. By the mid-60s, Harbor surfboards were being ridden by U.S. champs. Notable shapers that worked for Harbor range from Dick Brewer all the way up through to Courtney Conlog and Brett Simpson's surfboard shaper, Tim Stamps. Rich Harbor passed away at his home, surrounded by loved ones on July 11th. He was 77 years old. I recorded this conversation with Rich back in 2013. Uh, he'd continue shaping for the next six years, by the way, up until 2019. And I hadn't listened to this conversation since, uh, for the past eight years, I guess. But I did just this past week, and I've decided to let it run unedited, including my original introduction. So I hope that you enjoy hearing from Rich. I have the fondest memories of him and his shop, especially in my youth. And I also can't recommend enough that if you can find a Rich Harbor surfboard, buy it immediately and write it today. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope that you enjoy my conversation with the late, great Rich Harbor. Rich Harbor is a pioneer of modern surfboard building in Southern California. He's been an integral part of the surfing community ever since the introduction of polyurethane foam in the late 50s. Since that time, Southern California has developed into the hub of the surf industry, and Rich Harbor has quietly distributed ripples of influence both through board design and business dealings. While many of his contemporaries have grown into large factories and international operations, Rich Harbor still toils away in the same small shaping bay, less than half a mile from where he rode his very first wave. Rich got into surfing from an unlikely source, even more unlikely considering the era. It was the early 50s in Southern California, and Rich's mom was an avid bodyboarder. His dad supported her hobby. And he built her a plywood boogie board, basically, and she'd ride waves on this damn thing. I never saw my dad in a pair of trunks. I don't know, even know if he swam, but my mom was nuts about it. Oh my gosh. And so she rode waves and rode waves and rode waves, and one day she's sitting on the beach and she said, Rich, why don't you try surfing? And I'm thinking, geez, I'm pretty good at this surf map thing. Yeah. Maybe that would be the ticket. Rich borrowed a friend's balsa board. He still remembers riding his very first wave all the way to the sand. He was hooked instantly. Eventually, he found a kid selling a polyurethane foam surfboard. The maintenance of that board set Rich on a career path that hadn't previously existed. I rode that thing all summer long, and as it got dinged, I got 
you know, how do you fix this? Yeah. And somebody on the police department knew fiberglass, you know, and brought a piece of fiberglass and resin and, and fixed this ding for me. I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw this liquid turn this silver stuff clear and then it hardened right in front of my eyes. It was just, oh man, this is cool. This board that I originally had was too big. Oh, okay. And so I sawed the thing off in front of the tail, in front of the fin, oh. and reshaped it, reglassed it, stuck the fin back on, it worked great. Really? So how big was it once? I think it got down to about nine foot. Okay. <laughs> I don't know, I can't remember. But all I know is I sawed, I can't believe, you know, kids are crazy. Yeah, totally. <laughs> 15 years old. So, but the thing worked. Okay. And so I'm thinking, hey, if I can do that, I can make the whole thing. Sure. Why not? You know, I can glass, I can do sand. I had a, a repair business going. A surfboard repair? Yeah. Oh, okay. I was the best repair guy around. Finding material, though, probably wasn't an easy task, uh, The right? Sioux Beach Lumberyard had fiberglass. And, and, oh, okay. And uh, that guy was smart. He had a drum. And he packaged his own. I remember oh, okay. they, were, they were just big empty wine glasses jugs. Just sell you a liter <laughs> yeah. or whatever? I'd buy it by the gallon because wow. I was you know, making, doing a lot of repairs. So I got to thinking, God, here's my dad who's this tool and die guy sure. over at Douglas Aircraft. So he's pretty crafty. And I'm he's going, got tools, I would assume. So I went, Dad! Why don't we make a surfboard? <laughs> and he goes, hmm, yeah, okay, father-son bonding, okay. Sure. So he takes me down to Walker Foam mm -hmm. in Newport Beach. And we pull up, and here's Harold with this, seems to me a Ford something or other, with a, a rope, big rope tied around the front bumper, going to a pulley, and down to this big concrete mold. It sticks that sucker in reverse, backs out. The mold opens, here's a blank. No way. And I went, yeah, That's... I want that blank. For those unfamiliar with surfboard construction, polyurethane foam blanks are molded in one piece. Nowadays, once the blank is ordered, the blank supplier cuts it in half lengthwise, places the requested wood stringer in the middle, and then glues the blank back together. In the 50s, Walker Foam just sold the blank by itself. It was the job of the shaper to figure out the rest. Rich drew a chalk line down the center of the blank, pulled out the handsaw, and tried to cut a straight line. Can you imagine how bad that must have been? I, mean, no. I couldn't do one today very good, I don't think. Yeah. And hand-sawed that thing in half, and I was good at wood shop in school. So I had, and my dad had all the tools, so I broke out the, the plane and tried to flatten that thing, you know, straight, mm -hmm. and it just wasn't happening. Somehow, I went, I wonder if I slid these two halves like this, if they'd sand each other. Oh, wow. And it worked. Really? So I got the thing pretty flat. And then I 
went to the local lumberyard, picked up a piece of three-quarter inch redwood, which was pretty stock for the days. Sure. Either that or balsa wood. I didn't have a clue where to get that. No, I remember no gloves, <laughs> water gloves, and just slopped the resin on that thing, and I had an inner tube. What's an inner tube? Yeah. <laughs> You've got to be old in one inner tube bits. <laughs> sure. Got this car inner tube, and now I got rubber bands. So you made a rubber band out of an yeah, inner tube. Yeah. Yeah. And, got it. And use that to for clamps. Yeah. And glue the thing together. Crazy. So now I got. And it worked. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And Dad had a draw knife, and draw knife. It's got two handles and a big blade. Yeah. And you go like that. Just got all the the mass of wood out out of it, and I don't I know I didn't have a template or anything. What's a template? Didn't know. Didn't even know you use a template. Sure. I just sanded the skin off, glassed it, and glassed it with. I thought this would be cool to have a blue board, hmm. so I found some blue pigment. And it'd even be cooler on metallic blue board. Put the metallic dust in there, stirred that sucker up, glassed it. What's a squeegee? Didn't know what a squeegee was. I think I used a roller. I'm not sure. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was kind of a mess. Sure. But it got done. So I took that thing down to the beach, and everybody's going, you guys, you know, it was a joke. Yeah. And all the cool people had a Jacobs or a Hobie or something, but, and I was just really on the outside now. And th that probably is the turning point, is the fact that they were making fun of it. And... Rather than go buy a Hobie or a Jacobs, it's, I'm going to show you guys. Really? Yep. And so I kind of did a real study now of how a surfboard's supposed to look. Yeah. And I made, I wonder if there's a picture of it in here. Rich dug around his office and found some photos of that first board and a second, which was a vast improvement over the first. We've posted those photos on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. Making a living from surfing was an unproven entity at the time, so Rich enrolled in a local community college in the architecture program. He didn't last long there. I'm doing all this stuff, and here comes Christmas vacation. And the guy comes to us with 18 blueprints. And he goes... These blueprints are all full of mistakes. January 2nd, you arrive with them corrected. Hmm. I go home with these 18 blueprints, and I look at these three or four surfboards I've got to finish. Surfboards, blueprints, surfboards. Surfboards. <laughs> <laughs> And so I did. I went back January 2nd to the teacher and I said, hate to tell you, but I'm out of here. Really? I'm going to make surfboards. I goes, you're making a big mistake. And probably if that was today, 
he'd be right. Sure. But back then, it was, and I had no clue, mm -hmm. but here was a business just ready to explode. Rich's parents got tired of the foam dust and resin fumes, so they kicked him out of their garage. But they also gave him a small business loan and helped him secure a 30 by 30 square foot room, which he rented from a salad dressing factory. He quickly outgrew that space and moved into a building on Main Street in Seal Beach. He developed it into the model of what would become a classic surf shop. Shaping room in the back, retail in the front. He's been in that same location for 51 years, which makes it the longest continually operational shaping bay in the world. It's also an important anchor business for the local community. With a steadily increasing demand, Rich had the opportunity to employ some of the industry's finest shapers, guys like Dick Brewer, Robert August, and then one day, his path crossed with a particularly fabled character. Um, we're working, we're just buried got so much work to do and all of a sudden some my salesman comes back to me and goes hey you'll never believe who's in the in the showroom I want who Dale Velzi it's like Jesus Christ himself has walked in the door I mean this guy's huge to me yeah I mean I was, oh my god so I walked out there and introduced myself and and we got to talking and he goes, yeah, I hear you're really busy. And I go, well, shoot, yeah, we're busy. He says, uh, would you like me to do some boards for you? Uh, shape some boards for you. I went, yeah, but I don't have any racks. You'd have to come in at night or something. He says, no problem. I said, I got a rack I'm really used to at home. And uh, I'll just take some, you just put some outlines on them and show me what trails you like and I'll, I'll bring them back. I went, okay, and how many do you want? Oh, 10 will do it. Oh, 10, wow, okay, guy's an animal. <laughs> so I drew 10 outlines out, we went over how they're supposed to look and everything, and he goes, okay, and loads them in his truck and disappears. Comes back the two days later, I think. Here's 10 boards, all finished. This guy's pretty fast. You yeah, know? I couldn't. Suspicious. I couldn't do five a day. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I paid him, and, and he took ten more. And so I brought him back, and I went, these don't look too good. Oh no! <laughs> oh man! Now now I'm now I'm in trouble. How do you tell this guy who's the king of shaping that he's Shaper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went, oh man. And uh, I get a phone call from Jim Galoon, who's the manager at Hobie's. Hey, has Velsey been by your shop? Yeah. He's been by here too. And they aren't looking too good. And he says, but I know where I know where he lives. I'm gonna go have a look. So Galoon calls me back the next day and he says, You're never gonna believe this. I went, what? He said, I go over to Belsey's garage and here's a big sign, Del Belsey School of Shaping. Oh my gosh. He says, the place is just whining noisy. Open the door, and here's about five racks with all these guys plowing surfboards. 
Velzy is getting paid by these guys and paid by me. <laughs> That's unbelievable. <laughs> what a scam. Oh man. Oh, How did you handle that? I forgot now. <laughs> we, don't, we don't need any more help. We got it. It's under control. At the 1966 World Championships, Jock Sutherland and Steve Bigler made the final riding harbor surfboards. Nat Young won the event, riding a board that was at least one foot shorter than everyone else's. The shorter design allowed him to maneuver more easily. Dick Brewer was working with Rich at the time, and they went back to the drawing board and set out with the goal of designing shorter surfboards. I think everybody involved in it the first thing we tried to do was make these shorter boards paddle. I mean, yeah. we didn't realize that you didn't have to knee paddle, <laughs> you know. And so flotation was a key element for, I'll bet you, a couple of years. And um, McTavish was making these, well, there weren't any blanks for them. Oh, yeah. And we just saw the back of the blank off. And here you'd have the big thick thing, and what do you do with it? You put a big V in it. So we were doing that for a while, and those things more maneuverable than what we had, but they didn't work. Mm -hmm. And and that then brewers started making these things that were pocket rockets. The whole. For some reason, it, it went from you gotta gotta paddle a surfboard down to this thing's gotta be the fastest thing on earth, and rocker was terrible back then. If it didn't lay on the floor flat with lifting the nose, it you weren't gonna go fast. It had to have just straight tail rocker, yeah, which was just horrendous, but uh, that went on for a year or so, and then slowly but surely we started adding curve to the tail. Then a mistake from his blank supplier led to a design innovation that would become one of Rich's best-selling surfboard models. I got an order from this guy named Rich Chu for a blank for a board and he's a local guy that was pretty good and I got the blank in and they were gluing us for us by then but they there weren't glue they, they'd come with just a strip of wood in the middle that hadn't been cut yet here's your draw knife you you do it pal yeah and this one had way more rockers somebody in the down there was on drugs and glued too much rocker in the thing. And I was thinking, this is weird. And I thought, wait a minute, maybe this will work. If you turn on this rail, it's gonna follow that curve instead of going straight like the rest of them were. And the thing worked. And it sat in the water, it was all yellow at that time, with a black band or something, 
and it sat in the water and looked like a banana. And it got nicknamed the banana board. And then he was winning some contests on that board. And uh, instead of getting a new one back then, you sand the color off, fix the dings, and recolored it and sent them back out in the water. The, the traditional, yeah, the what black, we know, the banana. The black stripe, yeah. black and white that stripes became, with a gold band. Yeah. The unique color design of the board and Rich Chu's competitive success riding it helped expedite the public's acceptance of the new design concepts. Rich explained the introduction of putting V into the tail of the board. Um, tail V changes the, the rocker on the rail and the the center stringer is considered the rocker, but if the, the V is deep, it will raise that line up and give it more curve. And so when you put the board on a rail, it will follow the curve that's on the rail line, mm -hmm. but when it's on its flat, now it's a different rocker, and it gives it roll. You can tip it from rail to rail. So and, it allows a tighter turn, essentially? Yeah, yeah. And you can move that point forward by putting a diamond on the tail instead of a square, and it essentially shortens that curve. And so a diamond tail will turn tighter than a square tail. Who's responsible for developing that concept of V? Where did that come from? I think McTavish. Oh, okay. Can give, I think he's the one to give credit to. Okay. And uh, actually shortening the boards, putting V in them, I think can all be given to him. He's really had a, a, a forward-thinking brain at the time. Mm -hmm. He also discovered a design detail that would benefit nose riding without changing the rocker profile. Step deck, Steve Bickler came in here one, came actually, we had a satellite shaping shop in Costa Mesa because it was just too big to do all here. Yeah. And he came down there one day and went, I just rode this Yater called a spoon, and this thing's just so neat, so this, so that. He tried to describe it to us, and I, if you don't shape, it's a little difficult to describe, and so we just started talking and decided to make this step deck, and I've never seen a spoon. I don't even know what they look like. But I made this board with a, there's one above your head. Okay. And uh, what, so what is that? What we were trying to do is make, reduce swing weight, which you take that amount of foam out of there and it's gonna reduce the amount of dead weight in front of your 
foot. Swing weight, when you turn a surfboard, is the dead weight in front of your foot. Okay. And you make the thing six foot long and you really reduce the foam, but that hadn't happened back when this was designed. There wasn't short boards. And so, A, to reduce swing weight, but we knew that surfboards nose ride better with a flatter rocker at the nose. More rocker and it pushes water. Mm -hmm. And so the theory in that thing was to you get out of the nose and the, and the thing will bend flat. Okay. Flatter. Reduce the rocker. So now you got paddling with when you're not out there and then you flatten it out. So what was done to make it do that? We took a whole lot of foam out of it. Okay. Thinned it out in the nose. Like an even amount off the top and the bottom and just made no, it No, no, just the deck. Just the deck. Got the deck it. was scooped out. Got it. While Rich's legacy will likely reflect his contributions to surfboard design evolution, the reality is he's been an equally influential businessman. Rich has dabbled in the skateboard business, and he's even partially responsible for the popularity of the modern shaping machine. He, along with Harold Walker, Dewey Weber, and a couple others, created early versions of a CNC machine to try to accommodate the high demand for their boards. It was essentially a framework that fit over their shaping racks. Rich could bolt on different runners for different templates and then attach a router to a crossbar, and it allowed him to put a profile on the blank. That thing, I used and rebuilt versions of that about three or four different times. And um, I really believed in it because it added a lot of consistency mm -hmm. to the shaping. And Weber made gazillions of boards using that. And Harold Iggy would finish them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can, I can take one of those things that's been profiled, and I have even the half. I can show you the half template still, and I can go around with a router and do that and put an outline on a board in less than five minutes, easy. And I can, at one time, could turn the rails in less than five minutes. Wow. And I've got basically what ProCam has. Yeah, basically a stepping yeah. stone to yeah. a modern but the, CNC. But the problem all of a sudden evolved in too many sizes, too many shapes, too many curves. I had just stacks and stacks of these plywood runners. Yeah. And you'd have to, you'd have to five or ten of them all the same to make it worth setting up for. Sure. And geez, it just got to be just crazy. Yeah. And then um, Brian Lindsay and, and Rob Colby, Rob Colby used to be Brian's partner, uh, came by here one day and said, hey, you know, we just graduated from college and we're going to build a shaping machine, but we need to know where you get your bits. I'm cutting. Tell you what. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you in on the secret. But you gotta, you know, <laughs> remember me when I need you bad. Sure. 
And so I told them where, the, where to get the bits. And they still use the same place, I think. Rob Colby went on to become the president of Quicksilver Americas. Brian Lindsay operates one of the largest surfboard machine cutting facilities in Southern California. To wrap up, Rich and I discussed the business of small business. We are the, the epitome of small. We're, we're the original small shop. Yeah. And we're Hobie, Greg Knoll, um, Weber, Gordon Smith, just all got huge. And I think our peak month was 150 boards. That's, we've just never been huge. Yeah. And I, I dread losing the, the personal contact with it. Yeah. I, I don't want that to ever happen. Um, do you still have that personal contact with customers, with clients? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I, we have a website that, that I go over every day all the emails that come in and they come in from our website contact at Harbor Surfboards but I read all of them mm -hmm. and anytime there's a design question I just jump right in and walk the guy right through it. The surf industry has grown a lot <laughs> in your time immeasurably. Yes. Um, in the last few years, we've seen a lot of growing pains. Harbor Surfboards has worldwide demand, but you've kept it relatively small and also um, kept it based in this small community of Seal Beach yeah. on Main Street, yeah. which I think is really something. How much of that was by design and how much of it was just, you were just kind of adapting to the needs of each year. I think I think overall we we've just adapted to what what the need is yeah. out the front door. Um, there's been times when I thought I was going to be try to be big, and every time I've done that, and it's been more than once. Uh, I've almost regretted it. it start losing the individual hands-on that, that I feel my business needs. What you fighting for It ain't nothing you ain't had A final farewell and thanks to Rich Harbor. Thrilled to be able to have had this conversation and time with him. I'll link to everything that we discussed, their website, and of course post the photos that he and I discussed in this episode on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Hope that you enjoy that. There's a comment section at the bottom of the page if you'd like to leave a comment. Um, a couple of other updates about our website. 
Uh, I mentioned last week that we, we recently launched a message board, which is available to supporters of the podcast. If you'd like to engage there, it's just a great kind of town square for everybody to uh, continue the conversations that happen here on air and then also um, offer show suggestions or just banter about anything that's happening in surfing. And then also available to everyone. We actually just uh, created a listener line. So if you would prefer to call in your feedback and there's a good opportunity that we will play your message on air, not a good opportunity, but there's an opportunity that we will play your message on air. Um, you can find that phone number on the contact page on surfsplendorpodcast.com. I'll read it off here, even though you probably won't write it down. The number is 760-237-0150. Calls have already been coming in for the last 48 hours, so that'll be fun. You can um, leave whatever pertinent info you want on there or leave it completely anonymous. Let us know what show you want it to be played on and discussed. And uh, yeah, have fun with that or take it super seriously. Ask serious questions too, whatever. All right, so um, man, Olympics kick off this weekend. I'm publishing an episode with Scott Bass of Spit on Wednesday this week and then Chaz is back from sailing the Mediterranean. So he and I are gonna reconvene on Thursday for an episode of The Grit. We have a full week here. And the Brewer Brothers just published an episode of The Sunday Joint and then Scott Bass just emailed me an episode of the boardroom podcast which i will get published in the next 24 hours as well so you can find everything on whatever podcast app you listen in or of course on surfsplendorpodcast.com oh one final thing we've launched that film vault where we're posting surf videos on the website now and uh hush hush we've posted the full film sea of darkness the mysterious uh sea of darkness that was made by michael oblowitz and then uh, was all the rage of the film festival circuit. Lots of rumor, lots of discussion about it. And then somebody purchased the rights to it and disappeared the film. So it never saw the light of day. But somebody uploaded a copy to YouTube. I'm sure it'll get disappeared from there as well. But watch it while you can. We've put, You could search YouTube for it or come to surfsplendorpodcast.com and watch it there. All right. That is all for this week. This is, of course, David Scales. Uh, saying thank you and reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and of course, shred on.